0: You want to know what the best email marketing service is for your small business? Well, I've got the team for you. EmailToolTester.com is the place to find reviews and tutorials of newsletter services like Active Campaign, MailChimp, GetResponse, and many more. Download their free comparison spreadsheet that will help you find the best email marketing service among many providers. Just Google Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. Again, just Google it, Email Tool Tester Comparison Template, to find it. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their Social Index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies.
1: For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right.
0: One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck.
1: Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart,
0: and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Bill Mesitis. Bill was previously the Chief Marketing Officer and Chief Revenue Officer at Slack. Before that, Chief Marketing Officer at Zendesk. And before that, Senior Vice President of Marketing at Salesforce.com. He's had five exits over his career. And today on the podcast, we talk about what he's up to now, which is a lot of advisory work, because he obviously doesn't need to work after that many successful exits, what kinds of projects he's excited about. We also talk about lessons and tips and uh, things he's learned along the way in terms of scaling a business building your marketing tech stack, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Bill Masaitis. Well, Bill,
1: welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Alan.
0: So I have to start with just the highlights. Slack, Zendesk, Salesforce. That's three exits just in the last three companies. <laughs> so so we've got to start with where did you, before we get there, where did you start your career and what was the path towards those three most recognizable names that most listeners know or are using
1: today? Yeah, sure. So actually before those three on the B2B side, I did about 10 years on the B2C side. So mm-hmm. I did my first startup right out of college. Co-founded, co-founded it with a a couple of my friends, and that was before the days that I knew there were things that were called VCs that would give you money for a portion of your company. So, it was a, it was a great actually lesson in you know bootstrapping and scaling a company without a lot of uh, funds, and I think that really helped shape me to to help grow and how to grow but do it efficiently. So spent some time there. That was a company called Cases Ladder. We grew it to about 10 million members. We had an early subscription model. We were profitable. We ended up selling that. Then spent some time for some large media sites. So as part of a leading marketing for IGN Entertainment that had sites like IGN.com, Ask Men, Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, grew that up to about $100 million in revenue, sold that to uh, News Corp, and then went over to News Corp to lead up online marketing for a number of their sites. So everything from Fox Sports, uh, Wall Street Journal, American Idol, all of the previous IGN sites. It was just a, an incredible opportunity to help build a, a really large network. And we built it up to, I think, the third largest in the world. And you know that's when I got the call from Mark over at Salesforce and you know, the entire team there was just building something special. And I kind of made a pivot over to the B2B side of the house.
0: Got it. So 10 years on the consumer side and, you know, making that shift, if you will, from News Corp and, and maybe Fox Sports and those types of properties to Salesforce, that seems like a big jump. Was that consumer marketing something they were looking for? Or was it the digital
1: aspects? Like, what, what was the pivot there? Yeah. So, I think Salesforce and Mark really wanted to bring in some consumer DNA into the company. It's it's something I've always respected about Mark is that he's constantly innovating, constantly disrupting. And it was kind of a big leap for me because, you know, at the time, SaaS and the cloud wasn't nearly as widespread. And really, Salesforce, I think, was the pioneer for that movement. But I just really believed in it at the time. It, It made sense. I mean, you have to remember there was this world... Where enterprises literally used to buy software that you would install on disk to their own servers and have massive IT teams that would run these deployments. And, you know, here comes this beautifully simple model of running things out of the cloud. And so I just want to be part of that movement and coming into Salesforce in the early days was just an incredible experience for me.
0: That's awesome. So I know you went from Salesforce, I think the sequence was Salesforce to Zendesk to Slack. Yeah. And as you kind of moved from one to the other, and I believe it was at Slack, you actually took on the CRO role. Yeah. So scaling businesses, when you're mm-hmm. the CMO, and then when you become you know CRO, which I'm assuming means you have sales under you as well. What are the secrets or the tips that you could share to other CMOs that are kind of in that same role or taking on that role?
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, kind of to clarify, my role at Slack, I was basically CMO slash CRO. And and what that meant is I ran all the customer facing teams. So sales, marketing, success, support. We really liked it because it aligned all of these customer facing teams to be under one leader and it allowed us to take a really customer-centric based approach. My philosophy, I don't know if I have like shortcuts or tricks, but I, I always just tried to approach marketing with that. It's constantly innovating and we should innovate our marketing or go to market as much as we do in the product side. And right now, so many great, incredible SaaS companies out there, but I have seen a lot of companies, especially in the B2B space, that just kind of adopt a 30-year-old dusty B2B playbook <laughs> you know, centered around <laughs> press releases and field events and top-down, outbound sales. And I think there's just so much innovation that's happening, and it's fun to kind of reinvent what go-to-market looks like. So, you know, I can tell you some of the things that worked really well for us. You know, mm-hmm. the first was maybe disrupting or innovating on just basic pricing and packaging, right. right? You know, one of the things we tried at Slack was innovating the free trial. So most in that day, B2B free trials were either time-bound or user-bound. And, and we tried to innovate and just say, hey, you know, you can have 10,000 people on Slack if you want, and you can use it for as long as you want. There's still a free plan for you. That was, you know, that was very different. And then think about what are the upgrade drivers that come later on that help people and encourage people to move up. Um, that was a bit different. We tried something where... If you stopped using the product, if you're an SMB and, you know, they're always going to be price sensitive. But if you stopped using the product, we would give credits and refunds back mm-hmm. for, for the users that stopped using it. And so I, I think we had either 10 or 14 day active usage. And basically, if someone stopped using it for 14 days, we would send a credit back to the admin and say, hey, you know, Judy has stopped using the product. Here's your credit back. And that was Pretty radically different, right? That, that is radically different. <laughs> if you had got to go to most you know, uh, CFOs and say, hey, we're going to do that, I think their minds would explode with the revenue recognition issues. But right. being a startup, it was just we wanted to do something very customer centric. And we really liked the idea that we don't get paid unless our customers are getting value out of it. And for us, it wasn't about did they just sign up? It was really about like, are they getting utility and are they using it every day? So that's an area that I think like really important that I I find that helped out a lot. Another I think is just on the brand side. So I I work with a lot of companies now, kind of in my advisory capacity, and so many B two B companies I think feel they need to play it safe and take a very sterile, bland approach because maybe they're moving up market or they're selling an the enterprise, and hey, we can't have any personality or any brand or any color. And I actually think like that's a great opportunity. You have to stand out. You got to understand like anyone that has success in a space, you're going to have ten competitors overnight because <laughs> the VCs are so good at identifying, you know, which companies are doing well and where they can deploy additional capital. And so I like the I love the idea of like standing out. And it's something we tried differently at Zendesk. I mean, when I was there, we had. A massive green Buddha saying, love your help desk. (laughs) That was very different than the Oracle customer support of the day. You know, and at Slack, you had this really bold tartan plaid. Slack had a very distinctive editorial tone and voice you know, it was whimsical and fun. And we would write fun release notes that you might actually want to uh, <laughs> read or, or even a loading message of the day, right? That was just a little different, made you smile, you know, as opposed to just having a little hourglass sitting there waiting for you have to load up, like have some fun with it. So I, I think like on the branding side, there's a lot of opportunities there. And then maybe the last thing I'd say is just, I really believe in, you know, this idea of being customer centric, you know, something Mark always preached to us at, at Salesforce was, you know, it's all about the customer success. And I love this idea of thinking about the brand as the sum of all these little experiences that someone has with your company. And and, and that impacts marketing, sales, success support, legal, product. But I love the idea of optimizing around those experiences, coming up with the right metrics, and really pivoting. Because ultimately in SaaS you have it, it's not about how much money you make from the customer when they sign up with you right it's these recurring revenue streams and lifetime value and then getting them to go out and talk about you and recommend you it's so more important that it is have a great experience and recommend you so i love that customer centric philosophy
0: that's great that's great and on the brand front, I mean the whimsicalness that that you're talking about building into the product messages um uh, you know as well as the look and the feel of the brand and tone of it was that something you brought with you from the consumer world or what where did where did where did that come from
1: yeah i mean i was i'm definitely strongly influenced by a lot of my experiences on the consumer side where I, I think you see a lot more brands that are willing to take some risks, willing to develop an emotional connection with their users, um, willing to have some fun. And I think me coming into B2B in these different startups, uh, one of the reasons I loved is coming into Slack, it was kind of, you know, marketing person number one. So you had pretty much a blank slate to be able to kind of create the brand, the visual identity, the look, the feel, the interactions. And we just, we spent a lot of time trying to codify that editorial tone and voice. And, and not only that, but really scaling it so it's great if one person knows it but you know training all the people in customer facing roles so marketing support success sales all on what our tone and voice is even metricing some of those teams based on how well they adhere to it right like so even for support we would do things like you know retroactively look at tickets uh, that came in and go hey did this customer support agent how well did they speak in our tone and voice you know were they friendly and have empathy? Was it a fun tone? Did they not use any acronyms? That's something we always try to stay away from and just try to make it scale so we could train everyone, certify them, and make sure that was consistent as we continue to grow and scale. Got
0: it. Got it. Well, I imagine you are demonstrated the ability of scale, right? (laughs) And scale within the organization, scale of the business itself and driving that through marketing and other aspects of the company. So I, I imagine... You very well understand marketing operations and the technologies that work best, and just want to kind of do a um you know what if scenario right a hypothetical yeah. if you know let's say I'm a new company i've got some some traction in the market, i'm looking to scale you know or maybe you know maybe even i'm a a company that just needs to improve its efficiency of my marketing, yeah are there technologies or processes that you'd go to? You'd turn to? uh, In general, where would you start?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So first off, I'm a huge advocate of building sophisticated marketing tech stacks. Mm. I think a real lot of it centers back to what I talked about earlier. When I I did that first startup, you know, my own experience was when we co-founded was we just didn't have a lot of money and we couldn't throw people at problems. And as we were growing and scaling really fast, we had to think about what is the tech that's going to allow us to grow and scale and develop these customer relationships and be targeted. And so I love, I mean, everybody kind of does the, you know, the basics, the CRM, the, maybe the marketing automation, but I love going a couple steps further, you know, <laughs> where you right. think about things like, you know, predictive lead scoring and multi-touch attribution and multivariant testing and heat maps, voice of the customer, NPS surveys. I, I feel like there's just so much great marketing tech out there. And then a lot of it's been the, Result of this movement to the cloud, where you do have these incredible, best of breed, you know, consumer friendly type products that have been democratized so that anybody in the SMB space or, or above has access to them. So, I, I think it's incredible. I mean, there's never been a better time to, to run a business right now, and, and having a full, robust marketing tech stack is what's going to allow you to grow and scale efficiently.
0: Right. And so if you've got, you've got the tech stack figured out, so to speak, I mean, the the core functions, right? The yeah. CRM, the marketing automation, what are some of the things that you've used that maybe those extras that you talked about or mentioned?
1: Yeah. So I love for predictive lead scoring. I, I love infer. I think they're fantastic. They take a very Google based approach and <laughs> don't just look at lead scoring as all right, what, pieces of uh, content have they read and we're going to give you a score for them i mean they look at 100 different signals they'll look at you know every page they've been to have they been the product how much are they using the product you know what type of company are they how those leads historically converted from that company what pieces of content are they looking at just hundreds of different signals to help give you this ongoing real-time lead score that's changing i think that's super powerful you know on on the multi-touch attribution side There's one thing that's actually frustrated me when I really started learning about attribution and B2B is that I mean, most people that have been part of B2B software for a while, you know, intrinsically know that you don't just someone doesn't see your product and decide to buy you that day. It it takes time. And when I worked at Salesforce, we had to really build our own internal multi-touch attribution software. We were very security and InfoSec. We had to be really careful which third-party tools we we use, which meant we had to build some of them in-house. And one of the things that I discovered was that you know, people would interact with us for maybe three months before they would become a lead. And then it might be another six months until they bought from us. And that was just a much longer horizon. And if you think about it, the predominant method in B2B, and, and some people, you know, still kind of use this as just either first or last touch. And so you have maybe 30 touches amongst nine months and you're giving all the credit to first or last which by the way i think one of the reasons why google scm is so huge (laughs) (laughs) because everybody does either a brand search at the very end and google claims all the credit for it (laughs) anyways they have their own good uh, attribution software too but i i just think like those are two good examples of like i think we can go a couple layers deeper and just be much more sophisticated Mm -hmm. and targeted with your tech
0: gotcha and uh, what if you were advising somebody on multi-touch attribution, are there yeah. things that you learned? I mean, there's all different ways to do it, right? Yeah. And I'm I'm, I'm sure it probably depends on the business that you're in and, and all the activities along that cycle, so to speak. But are there any general rules of thumb or, or tips that you
1: could give out? You know, from my experience, I think the first thing going in is there is no magic bullets. There's nothing that will give you 100% certainty. You're just trying to increase your degree of confidence. And it gets difficult because attribution spans so many different lenses. You have mm-hmm. online versus offline. You know, you have digital, you have video, you have audio, you have <laughs> right. laptop versus personal device. And, and all the different attribution vendors are, are good at some areas, not good at others. But I found that you know, for me, I like the movement towards linear regression modeling. So it'll look at every single touch Mm -hmm. across every single deal. And then it'll start to see, okay, what are the touches that tended to influence the biggest deals that closed the fastest that were our best type customers? Even attribution modeling that will catch view throughs. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of times if, if you do a display heavy marketing plan, or even like a content heavy marketing plan, those are classic nurturers, middle steps. So you have to be able to make sure that you know, it's it's catching when someone actually sees your ad, maybe doesn't click on it, but moves you through there. So, I mean, ultimately, I, I just like a, a, a much more sophisticated multi-touch modeling. That being said, you know, there's easy ways to do this, too. You know, it doesn't have to be super high tech. We use things like a like, We would do, in addition to that, we would do something simple like, hey, after you signed up, hey, where'd you hear about us? You know, was right, it a right. billboard on 101? Did you see us in our ad in Fortune? Did you read a piece of content? Uh, it was a news article, and that was a nice additional signal. We would also do things like run campaigns in you know, three sister cities, so let's say like Austin, Denver, and Seattle, and then compare those to control groups of cities that never got any of the advertising and try to understand like, hey, what was the lift in all the traditional funnel metrics, leads, uh, pipeline, et cetera. But then also, what was the lift in brand metrics, which I think you can track, You know, things like aided recall or unaided recall or sentiment. And we got very scientific at it, essentially, like, you know, how much did a point of awareness cost us to try to grow that overall awareness? So I think there's a lot of different ways you can do it. It's just, I think, having a, um, you know, a dedication to putting yourself towards it.
0: Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, one of the areas you, you kind of touched on a little bit in a couple of questions now, but one of the areas that it seems hotly debated and argued is this notion of brand marketing versus performance marketing. And I'm curious, I know you've used things like TV in the past to, you know, advertise SaaS type products, you know, so where do you, where do you land on that front?
1: Yeah, it's a really fun debate. You know, I I think even just advertising and B2B is often debated, right? Can you do consumer style advertising and You know, a lot of ways, not not to get too meta, but I think in some ways, you know, marketing is really just automated sales. (laughs) (laughs) And so for us at Slack, in a lot of ways, we definitely use sales. A lot of people think we didn't, but we did. But for us, we had almost like a consumer type product because the TAM was so large. I mean, essentially anyone that worked at a company and had used email and wanted to do a better way. So for us, consumer style plays like these larger advertising plays worked really well with it. And, and I think that was, that allowed us to make that dedication towards the advertising to help us grow in areas where maybe we didn't have an existing footprint. We were getting into a new country or a new geo or a new vertical. As far as like brand versus, you know, performance lead gen, I mean, personally, like my, my view that has evolved over the years. Like I actually think that lead gen is short-term leads and brand is long-term leads. Mm, right. <laughs> it's a little bit harder to build a long-term brand. doesn't mean you can't measure it. Like, I said, I think there's really great metrics out there, and there's you know actually simple ways to do it now that don't cost that much. But having you know when you create a brand that someone loves, that they have an emotional connection to, they're going to recommend you more. They're going to buy more from you. They're willing to pay a higher price with you. They're going to trip less. All these classic SaaS metrics just get so much better. And I think you know you just have to kind of have that long term viewpoint, and that's hard. I get it. Like a lot of companies you know, under incredible pressures and, you know, have VCs and you have to hit this quarter's numbers. So, a lot of times the budget shift towards that short-term, let's just get these leads in. But ultimately, I think if you can have a more customer-centric brand focus, you can create these iconic brands that just fundamentally are, are growing faster.
0: Right, right. Performance marketing, I mean, the notion I get is you, 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 you can't live without it obviously, because you, you need to drive leads, short-term leads in the in the near term. But it sounds like the balancing act for you, at least as you described at Slack as well, was trying to build the brand and make sure you're driving sales at the same time. And not not to put words in your mouth, but balancing that throughout the entire life cycle of the scaling process. Is that yeah. true? Or
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think the way I would describe it is you know, you have to look at these as as a journey. Again, someone doesn't just see you one time and go out and buy you, especially as you move more at market, right? To mid market and enterprise. So you know it's a journey. I what I think what I'm saying is, you know, you have to have that combination of brand and performance. You know, performance is kind of like at the end. That's when you're harvesting that interest. And a lot of times that's where your CTAs are, you know, free trial start now, 20% off, whatever it is. But before that, there's a lot of steps along that journey. And that's an opportunity to help educate your users about your space and that's where you see a lot of great content marketing come in that's where you have an opportunity to you know make them laugh smile a little bit if you look at anyone kind of listening to this if you search kind of slack amazing teams on youtube you can kind of see some of the videos we did for that and and they're you know they're not like a typical b2b ad <laughs> there's, there's animals and stuff. there's fun music you know hopefully you're laughing and smiling a little bit but you know that emotion is is transferring over to the brand. You know, that that was always our hope. So I think you just have to look at these holistically and and you know, there's a place for both of those. But I think if you only do one or the other, that's where you can get in a little bit of travel.
0: Got it. Well um you mentioned customer centricity before. I want to bring that back up because as I talk to a lot of CMOs, many of them are focused on customer centricity efforts or trying to drive enterprise-wide transformation along that journey for the first time and curious what you would advise them because it seems like in prior roles you've been primarily responsible for marketing as you progress you got more and more functional responsibility and How did you lead across the organization maybe in those earlier days? And then, you know, what was it like when you actually got the um, the control, so to speak?
1: Yeah. So I am tickled pink that you have so many other leaders now and and great companies are kind of embarking on this customer-centric focus. Mm -hmm. You know, I think for a long time, especially in B2B software, we were not optimizing for customer (laughs) centricity. We were, you know, putting every single piece of content behind a gate. You had to fill out 20 fields. Sales would call you before you even had a chance to look up what the product does. You know, if you do buy it, you're assigned one one thousandth of a customer success person. (laughs) And, you know, if you try to find the support link, it's in, like, four-point fonts, and, you know, it's three weeks before you get a response. So I definitely think we need some more customer centricity in our our space because ultimately it's no longer about the short-term sale. You know, SaaS has just changed the model where it's about lifetime value now and it's about recommendations and moving into new products and add-ons, upgrade, expansion. You have to view this as a long-term journey and customer centricity is just a way of doing that, you know, a way of thinking about, hey, what are all these experiences that we're giving to our customers and how can we get them to recommend you? You know, at Slack, I was definitely the evangelist, the advocate for the customer centricity. You know, in our internal Slack instance, if you do, you know, colon Bill, a little NPS <laughs> sign would show up. That's how much I loved NPS and talked about it there. <laughs> Net promoter score for those yeah. listening that aren't familiar with it. But I love that because it was just, it was a simple question. It's a one, I mean, it's literally one question. I don't like filling out 30 page survey. So just a simple question. How likely you'd recommend Slack to a friend or colleague. And then, the why question, which had all this treasure trove of data, I think it's great to be able to say, "Hey, you want to be customer centric," but then actually acting on it is is much harder, right? Because you have to start thinking about what are the right metrics we're going to track. Like NPS is one of them. We used a lot of transactional CSAT. We would survey people after large sales deals and be like, "Hey, you know, Judy was your account executive. How, how knowledgeable was she? And how helpful was she? How courteous was she?" Right? We wanted to have another signal around experience for salespeople beyond just did they close the deal. Because I think we've all had great experience with salespeople and we've all had bad experience with salespeople and we want to try to optimize around that. But where it gets tricky then is now you're, this customer centricity is really hitting all these different teams, right? And, and I don't think NPS is a marketing metric. I think it's a CEO metric. So it's hard. And a lot of it just depends on the company. But if, if you've kind of come from a little more older school company Being a champion for something like NPS can be really hard. There's just, there's a lot of sacred cows. You have teams that are now being maybe judged differently. You're changing a lot of the workflows, the process, and you just, you have to be an advocate, a huge evangelist, and you have to view it almost as like a massive change management exercise. So I have a lot of empathy for all the other people out there that are trying to lead these initiatives in-house. You know, it's something what I do now with kind of my advisory business, I, I help companies with that amongst a lot of other things, but it, it's great to see the renewed focus on it. Thank you. Thank you for those
0: examples. The I know you are doing advisory work and not to talk about your personal situation, but I don't think you really need to work. Right. So, (laughs) um, What are, you know, your dream projects or your engagements that you would love to do?
1: Yeah, this is, I mean, this is something I love doing. You know, I I hit a point where I'd been doing about 20 years and it's just really fortunate. I've had about five exits. And so, I wanted to kind of move into a different phase where I could help other great companies scale and grow their businesses and so it's something I love doing now you know for me my dream ones are working with very customer centric founders founders that have a long term view that are you know disrupting large markets I think that's absolutely fascinating you know, we're just good people. Life's too short. <laughs> you want to work with, especially when you're just doing it because you love it. You know, you want right. to work with people that you enjoy and that uh, you know you can kind of get in the trenches with and 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 help out. And ultimately, like I, I just want to be proud of the work. You know, I've got a little eight-year-old daughter and I want her to be proud of the companies that I worked with and the impact they made on the world. And, you know, I just feel so fortunate every day that I'm able to work with, you know, amazing founders. Cause again, this is this is the golden age innovation. There's never been easier to create a startup to disrupt large spaces. And, and I just think it's so exciting. I, I love getting up every day and, and helping the clients that I work with.
0: Got it. Well, one more question on founders, because yeah. it seems like you've worked with a number of them. You've even been a founder yourself. You know, what is the, what is it that makes a good founder or a You could say successful founder, but success, I put in air quotes around it.
1: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a broad question, right? And you see so many different founders with different backgrounds. The ones that I see are ones that really tackle spaces that just have a lot of pain in it. I think Slack's maybe a good example in that there was maybe a lot of latent pain. So... You know, I, I don't run across too many people that say, I love email and I love doing a lot of meetings throughout the day. That just works <laughs> awesome, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, but you know, no one were, ever. Yeah. yeah, but no yeah. one was really saying like, oh, I want this like real-time messaging platform that can bring in all these different information and take action on it and have transparency <laughs> and better productivity. Like there was that pain that was out there, you know, similar, I think like in the old model with taxis, right? Like I, yeah. I'm i only where I used to take a taxi to the airport and that was a really stressful experience because I have to call... The first cab company wouldn't answer, the second would, but they wouldn't tell me if someone was coming out. You know, I'm waiting. I don't know if they're going to make the flight. Should I call another one? The taxi finally shows up. I don't know what route they're taking. I don't know if they're going to take a credit card. You know, they're not very nice to me. (laughs) It was was this horrible experience, but we're all like, oh yeah, well, just what it is. Like you take a taxi. So I, I think founders that, you know, address that latent pain have a lot of opportunity. And then I think ones that are just open to, Disrupting, you know, innovative new tactics. I think those are intellectually curious people, open-mindedness. Th- those are the traits, and I, I've been super fortunate to work with some incredible founders. You know, Mark was at Salesforce, just this incredible philanthropist, an incredibly giving person. Always talked about customer success. You know, Mikkel at Zendesk, just a great individual. Learned a ton from him, and 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 Stuart Slack. Each of them just kind of brought unique capabilities to the table, but all of them just had hearts of gold and, you know, really believed in the mission that we were, that we were taking on. Got it. Well, I love
0: getting to know the people behind the businesses that we talk to. And so I'd love to ask you my favorite question, which is, uh, what it, you know, has there been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today?
1: <laughs> you know, the, the first thing that popped to my head there was I was, the nerd in third grade that was reading fortune Forbes and business week. (laughs) I don't know what it was, but I just knew that I loved business at such an early age. And I was doing like future business leaders of America and entrepreneurship contests. And it just, (laughs) it just defined me. Like I loved business. I could not get enough of it. And it's something that I think always shaped me to this day is just, I've always had kind of that intellectual curiosity for, Business and the great leaders out there, and the tactics they're taking. And so it was probably that moment, probably when I started geeking out on that, that I knew I was going down the business path. (laughs) That's hilarious.
0: You're like a real life. What was that show where it was Alex P. Keating or something like that? There was a. like a sitcom show back in the day. I can't remember the
1: name of it. But, oh, uh, I think I, I, yeah, I'm recalling too, but I can't think of I, it too. I can't we'll remember. We'll find it. It'll be in yeah, the show. We'll right. find,
0: yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we'll find that. But uh, you're like a real life version of
1: that. That's I, I was, yes. <laughs> yeah. so, well, uh, what advice would you give to your younger self? You know, I, I probably say be opportunistic. You know, it's advice that I, I, I give to a lot of people that I, that I uh, mentor and help out with. And I'm just a big believer. Like this is, we live in such an incredible time. There are so many opportunities out there. And, and I think there's always going to be that initial resistance, that friction that kind of wants you to say like, oh, let's just keep doing what I'm doing. But, you know, there's so many great opportunities out there. And I think just be a little risk taker, you know, when you see a great opportunity, go for it. And I think good things can happen.
0: I've got a, a follow up to that and yeah. I, it just came to me, which is how do you, how do you process failure? Cause you. You have been opportunistic in your career, obviously, and you've had great success. So I'm just curious. I know there has to be days where you're like, "It's just not going right." So how do you process that? You see, so, seem such a positive person.
1: <laughs> I, well, I definitely fail every day. I make mistakes, and my uh, daughter and wife are quick to point many of them out. <laughs> so i always to keep us
0: grounded, right? Yeah, yeah. they keep yeah. you
1: grounded. Definitely. <laughs> I don't know. I've just always had a, a positive viewpoint, and like I, I feel like failures are good you want to fail you know you should encourage your teams to fail to take risks i think the hardest thing that any business has to fight against is just this inertia of just doing the same thing and you know well this is this is our cash cow product right and we can't take resources away or this has been working so let's just keep doing it and so failures are good you know and and i think when you can get to a point where kind of just internalize that hey this is great like failure is a learning experience like you should be pushing yourself if you're not failing that probably means you're not pushing yourself hard enough or you're not taking enough risks so I love it I think it's just the mindset I'm a total optimist I'm like glasses <laughs> half full throw me like a really hard you know, problem and I'll be like, what a great opportunity, right? (laughs) We can turn (laughs) this around. This is great. But I just, I don't know. I just feel fortunate. I mean, we live in such a great time and there's such good people and, you know, family and the people you work with become your family. And so I just think it's a it's a great time to be alive. All right. Well what what fuels you? What keeps you going? I love A, I I love helping other companies grow and scale. So I'm a big gardener is a metaphor. Mm. And I love planting things from a seed and seeing them grow to a specimen plant and so for me it gives me like a huge amount of reward to come and work with a company and like help them with their hiring and recruiting and interviewing and mentoring and build like a best-in-class team or build a best-in-class marketing tech stack or like a a world-class go-to-market strategy like to me that that's exciting and it's fun to get to know the people it's fun to see the company grow and evolve and you know, have their, their growth increase and, you know, kind of skyrocket toward that, you know, maybe unicorn and, and beyond. I just think that's super rewarding. Life's so short. And there's just so many great founders out there and, and teams. And, you know, I I just, I, I love working with them. It's something that I, I find super personally gratifying. Got
0: it. Are there um, brands or companies or or causes that you follow or you think other people should take notice of?
1: Yeah. So, it's actually an interesting one that we haven't totally signed the deal yet, but I've been thinking about coming on board for a company called Get Accept. And and, and it's a really cool thing. What they do is they bring on... They basically leverage video as a part of the, of the closing process. So when you send a deal over, I mean, so many of us would just send the PDF or a document or whatever it is, but there's nothing with it. And this allows you to like literally put like a customized message, a video. It's got the analytics. It just helps you close everything better. You can message them back and forth and they're just a fun company. So I think this one I'm, I'm super excited to work with. <laughs> and then I don't know, at, at a broader level, I, I think just philanthropy, I, I think you know, again, I always look to Mark and, and what he's done with kind of like his children's hospital Mm -hmm. and just the, the, the level of awareness he'll bring to like all these different causes and issues. And, you know, I, I try to listen to what he says and, and try to help out where I can. Got it. Okay. And as a marketer, where do you see the future? Where
0: is marketing going?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a really hard yeah,
0: one.
1: I know. <laughs> I don't know. Because I mean, in, of me in is... five
0: years, we'll, we'll come back and we'll tell
1: you how we got it wrong, right? <laughs> yeah. The robots will be doing all of right. our work. So, A, I always come into it. And I think like one of the reasons I love marketing is because it changes every year. There's always new tactics, new strategies that, that come about. I mean, we didn't get a chance to talk about ABM and the level of targeting you can do there, which I think is just incredible. And that's a good example. Like that just wasn't around, you know, a little while ago. And so I think a like just, you know, I think the future marketing is like, hey, you have to be nimble, adaptable, always be learning. You know, there's always new tactics out there. I do think a little bit like we talked about earlier that, you know, this is more and more companies embrace a subscription model, both in B2B and, and consumer you know, there's just much, much more of a focus on their lifetime revenue and are they attriting and are they recommending other people. And so I really personally think the future marketing is all around uh, that customer centricity, you know, marketing's role, expanding beyond just, hey, did we get people in the door to, it's their entire life cycle. It's about delighting them. It's about educating them. It's about having a great relationship with them and ultimately getting them to a point to, they recommend. And, you know, if there's one thing I would always tell all my teams at Slack was, your goal is not to get people to buy from us. Your goal is to get them to recommend us. And and I just have always thought that's a a higher bar and a harder bar. And and I think if you know the future of marketing, if if more people thought about that, it would just be a great experience for everyone involved. Yeah,
0: well, you sparked an idea which I had never thought about before, which is you know whether or not the subscription models across B two B markets as well as B two C markets, if that's forcing us as consumers to think about our purchases every month and which thereby may require businesses to have that long-term focus, um, because otherwise we'll turn it off.
1: Definitely. kind of interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that. Well, even, yeah. And I, I'd even argue for a lot of companies that have innovated and go to market model, you're, you're doing a bottoms up seed and grow model now, Mm. which means you're getting one small team within a large organization, right? Like Slack would. Maybe have a 50-person team at GE. Well, that's like 300,000 people. Right. <laughs> yeah. You are highly incentivized to make sure that that group of people have a great experience. So they recommend you, right? right. And then grow and scale. And so I hope... So. I mean, just as a consumer too. like We've all been there either as a buyer on the B2B side or just as a consumer on B2C. And I just think the world would be a little better if you know we cared about people, we try to optimize around their experience delight them um and then you know great services grow and and, and that's good and reward that and, and i think that's a, a great virtuous cycle i love it well bill thanks so much for coming on the show oh alan it was an absolute pleasure thank you so much for having me hi
0: it's alan again marketing today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by kevin greeley Social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to marketing today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is
1: Marketing Today.